a heartwarming story this, this morning, and I hope it really touches your heart as we consider this man, Onesimus, and what happened to him. <clears throat> Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what, I, what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favour you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark. Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The title I've given my message this morning is, Can You Fix It? And those of you that have been, well, the children are not here right now, but they'll remember Bob the Builder. I wonder if you've ever watched Bob the Builder on TV. And the theme song of Bob the Builder was... Can we fix it? Bob the Builder, can we fix it? And the answer, yes we can. And that's my message to you this morning in terms of 
relationships. Can we fix it? Yes, we can. Last week on uh, Thursday, Thursday evening about half past nine, I, I was just getting on my push bike. So every evening about half past nine, I ride around the college and I shut all the gates, I set the alarms and just check quickly around college. And I had this lamp attached to the handlebars of my bike and I pushed the button to make it go and the switch broke. It doesn't work anymore. It's useless to me now. I pulled it apart, thought, well, maybe I can fix it, but the way they, things are built these days, they're not designed to be fixed. So I might as well just, well, who cares? Throw it away and get another one. And unfortunately today, we live in that kind of society. It's a throwaway society. If something breaks, well, don't bother to try and fix it. Just throw it away. Now, in Onesimus, we see in our book, was a slave, and he was a runaway slave. He was owned by a Christian master in Colossae about AD 60, and uh, if we see the, the map here, I wonder if you can see over on the side there, we've got the, the province of Asia, you can see Ephesus, and just below Ephesus is a little dot, and that's Colossae, and that's where Philemon lived and, and where Onesimus was his slave. And it seems we get the impression from this book that Onesimus took something from his master Philemon. We don't know what it was, to what value, but he took something, he stole something from him, and he ran away to Rome. He didn't just run down the road or to the next town. He went down to the coast, he got on a ship, and he sailed to Rome. And you can see Rome over here in, in Italy in the middle. That's about 1,500 kilometres away, so he really ran, didn't he? <laughs> he went as far as he could go, like a fugitive across the sea. And he would have been living a secret life. Maybe he hoped to just disappear into the society of Rome and that nobody would ever notice him. <laughs> nobody would remember him or recognise him. He was a fugitive. And it makes me think, as a lesson for us to learn here, when a problem occurs in your life or my life, or uh, somebody commits a sin, what does that person do? If you commit a sin, well, you could try and cover it up and ignore it and hope that nobody finds out. You can run away from your sin or your problem as far as you can go, or you can face up to the problem and sort it out. Well, Onesimus chose to run and away he went. But of course, problems don't get solved, do they, by running away. <laughs> they certainly don't. It reminds us of Jonah, doesn't it? He ran. Boy, did he run. He got on a ship at Joppa, and uh, Joppa's not on the map there, but you can see Jerusalem, and J Joppa was just uh, to just a little bit to the north on the coast of Jerusalem. And Jonah got on the ship, and he was going all the way to Tashish, which we understand is in Spain. Well, that's about over 3,000 kilometres that he wanted to run, as far as he could go to get away from what God was calling him to. So poor Onesimus, he's, well, I shouldn't say that, he's, he's done wrong and he's run as far as he could go. But what happens to him when he gets to Rome? Well, he meets, of all people, the Apostle Paul. And Paul is a prisoner 
in Rome. Now, we're not quite sure how this meeting occurred. Was there times when Paul was let out of prison to meet his friends or go to church or something? Uh, or did uh, Onesimus meet Paul by visiting him in prison? We don't know. But anyway, Paul tells Onesimus the gospel and he becomes a Christian. What a transformation takes place in his life. Verse 10, who became my son while I was in chains. And you'd think to hear the gospel from a person who was in prison because of the gospel, that's not very encouraging, isn't it? You think, well, I don't want to become one of them. I don't want to be thrown into prison. This, this gospel you're talking about, you say it's so wonderful, but you're in prison because of it. But this wonderful gospel transformed Onesimus's life. And I'm just putting it simply this way. There's many ways the gospel can be described, but I'm just calling it ABC this morning. It's as simple as ABC. First of all, to admit. Secondly, to believe. And thirdly, to confess. And the first thing in becoming a Christian is to admit, I am far away from God. I'm far away from him. I'm not right with God. And I deserve to receive the penalty of God. And that's just the vital first point in become, a person becoming a Christian. You have to admit. You have to ad, uh, uh, confess those things to God. There's some people who think that uh, becoming a Christian is just, oh, well, it's just something a little extra I can add on to my life. I'm already a pretty good person, but maybe Jesus will make, you, make me even better. And so I'll just uh, say I believe in Jesus as well. But there's no repentance. There's no confession and there's no, no change. And, but it's really important that admitting before God when a person becomes a Christian. And secondly, to believe. To believe that Jesus really is who he said he is. He is the Son of God. He is. And he died on the cross and he took my penalty, the penalty that I deserved. He took it. He didn't deserve it, but he took my penalty. And in doing so, Jesus makes me right with God. He doesn't just cancel the debt, but he gives me the righteousness of God in its place. So what a wonderful thing to believe and to take hold of by faith, by trusting. And thirdly, to confess, Lord, you have bought me. You've paid for me. You've bought me with a price. And Lord, and dear God, Jesus is Lord. He's my Lord, and I recognize him as such, and I'm going to follow him as my Lord. From now on, I will live for him. A, B, C. It sounds simple just to say it like that, doesn't it? But tell you what, it's a struggle for many people to go to reach that point of admitting, believing, and confessing. It's a huge wrench. It's a huge change of direction for a person so with Paul and Onesimus, a deep, loving friendship developed between the two. Paul says in verse 12 of Onesimus, Who is my heart? Who is my heart? What a tender expression that is. What, what warmth there is. He became a helper to Paul. Paul would have liked to keep him, liked to keep him with him. And some, at some point, the truth comes out. Somehow, <laughs> Onesimus spills the beans, and he says, Paul, I've got something to tell you. 
I'm a Christian now, I've got a history, <laughs> and you need to know <laughs> what that history is. Um, I remember once there was a uh, second-hand car company that was advertising, and they said something like, uh, every used car has got a history, ours have got a future. Sounds like typical car sales talk, doesn't it? But Paul heard from Onesimus the truth about his past, that he was actually a slave on the run. He'd stolen from his master. And when the truth comes out about where he'd come from, he'd come from Colossae, and his, his master was a man named Philemon, Paul went, wow, he's my friend. He's my personal friend. I know Philemon, Philemon very well. And, and he describes in this letter, we assume that uh, Onesimus was sent back with the letter in his hand to, to go to Philemon. And look at the wonderful description that the Apostle Paul gives of Philemon. What a wonderful man he was. A dear friend, a trusted helper, a partner, a man of faith in the Lord Jesus, a man who had love for all the saints, a man who gives joy and encouragement, a man who refreshed the heart of the saints. Boy, it's just the kind of person you love to meet and be with is Philemon. <clears throat> well, as time went by, Paul gently introduces to Onesimus the idea of going back to Philemon. Why? Well, because there was a wrong that had to be put right. It's better to face up to the problem than be on the run for the rest of your life. With the fear, the guilt, the shame, always on your heart. And another reason why, why uh, Onesimus should go back is because, because broken relationships can be fixed. Can we fix it? Yes, we can. But it's a big risk to take. And I'm sure that uh, Onesimus... Well, I think he might have spent a lot of sleepless nights worrying about what he would find and how he would be treated when he got back. What would his master do? How would Philemon react? He has all authority over me. And let's just consider for a moment the uh, picture of slavery in New Testament times. Uh, slaves had no personship. They had no rights. They were owned as a possession by their masters. And their master therefore had the right to do whatever he wanted to do with. And uh, just as observation from Matthew chapter 18 and verse 25, uh, there's a comment here, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Masters even had the right of life and death over their slaves, and uh, slaves couldn't go to the slaves' union and get representation. <laughs> they couldn't go and, and hire a lawyer to argue their case. And a runaway slave, if caught, could be branded on the forehead with the letter F, which means uh, fugitivus, which is runaway. He could be punished or even crucified. In the, in the Roman Empire, it's estimated that between 20 to 40% of the population were slaves. That's a lot of slaves, isn't it? 
So if you look at the population of Rome, uh, the empire might have been between 50 to 90 million people. There were somewhere like 10 to 30 million slaves spread through the Roman Empire. But I would like to point out from what I understand that most of them were reasonably treated. Many of them were servants. They lived in the house and they served their masters. So I don't want to give you the impression that, that all of the slaves were constantly being beaten up and punished. But what does the Bible say about the subject of slavery? Consider that for a moment. First of all, let's say that the Bible does not support slavery. It does not also encourage slaves to rebel or seek their freedom or run away. Well, why is that, you think? If Christianity is going to make me better, shouldn't I be trying to rise up in the ranks of uh, the quality of life? But the Bible says that when a person becomes a Christian, they enter into a new position in life, having a new status far higher and more important than any earthly status. And suddenly it's not so important what position you have on earth, whether you're a slave, a master, married or single, rich or poor, or the prime minister, or a rubbish collector. And I'd like to read to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we'll just start reading at verse 17. <clears throat> Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not become circum be circumcised. Uh, verse 20. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave? There we are. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. And we should I should just quickly point out at verse 29, it says, now what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. So do we, do we assume here then that that Paul expected the return of the Lord Jesus at any time. So there was that, don't worry too much about trying to improve things for yourself now, because at any day, the Lord could come back. And in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11, we read, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So Paul appeals to Philemon. He knows Philemon's heart, he has a good relationship with, with him, and so he doesn't command and force Philemon to take Onesimus back, he appeals to him out of love. And he points out to Philemon that the, the Onesimus that you're going to get back is not the same Onesimus that you had before. 
Onesimus was useless to you, but now he has become useful or profitable both to you and to me. And that's what his name means. Onesimus means useful. So it's a play on words, isn't it, that the Apostle Paul is using here. Well, how is Onesimus different? He's First of all, he is a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. He was now a brother in the Lord. He is no longer a thief. As Corinthians tells us um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and that is what some of you were. Don't you love that past tense? The 1 Corinthians 6 has this terrible list of how people were, and one of them is thieving, and that is what some of you were. Colossians 3, 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Trustworthy now, no longer a thief, useful and faithful. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28 says, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something good or useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. And Titus chapter 2 says, at verses 9 and 10, Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that, here's the point, so that, in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. What a wonderful ambition to have in your heart. Why do I work? Why do I do the things I do? What's the point of me living? It's because I want to make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive to other people. And there's a number of references. I'll just put them on the screen here, but I'm not going to read those all out to you today. But this, these verses give you a, a good picture of the concept of slavery in New Testament times and the biblical approach to people who were slaves. And of course, the Christian is now voluntarily a slave to God. Let's move on. So Paul's appeal was to accept Onesimus back, to receive him back willingly and lovingly, to take him back into his position as a slave. We assume that Onesimus was going back to be a slave again. <laughs> More than that, now of course, as a dear Christian brother and to be reconciled. Well, let's talk for a moment about fixing something that's broken. From wreck, <laughs> from wreck to reconciled. Not written off, thrown it away. Now, those of you that know cars know that if you took a car like that to the panel beater, they would laugh at you and say, <laughs> you expect me to fix that? Throw it away. It's a write-off. But that's an actual uh, transitional photo of what it, that exact car, what it did look like, and what it looked like after it was fixed. <laughs> amazing, isn't it? <laughs> really amazing. And it just uh, pays testimony to the clever workmanship of panel beaters and so forth. But God is in the repair business, isn't he? Uh, he's constantly fixing 
<laughs> broken hearts, broken relationships, healing hurts, mending marriages, fixing friendships, and doctoring damaged people. And to me, I think the church is like a hospital. It's helping the sick and wounded to recover, to be restored uh, spiritually to health and strength. And we could think of it like this. God has given each of us a toolbox for fixing things. And in the toolbox, we've got various tools. We've got love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, <laughs> acceptance, patience, kindness. These are the tools to do repairs, to do mending, welding, gluing, and darning of people's lives. Now, for reconciliation to take place between Philemon and Onesimus, there's certain things that would have to happen, and we saw that in the children's play that was, went so well this morning. First of all, Onesimus would have to, on his part, sincerely apologise to Philemon, admitting his fault, confess what he'd done, ask for mercy, forgiveness, acceptance, and reinstatement, and I guess too to promise not to do it again. And Philemon, on his side, what would he do? He would have to uh, open his toolbox, and he'd have to use the tools of love, grace, mercy, acceptance, and forgiveness, all from the heart. Not just a shallow thing, not just a begrudging thing, but from the heart. And Matthew 18 and 35, the parable of the unmerciful servant, we read, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. And I guess Philemon, Philemon could have been like the unmerciful servant and said, well, I'm shutting the door on that guy. He's untrustworthy. He stole from me. I, I can't have him back in my house. I'm finished with him. That's it. I've had it with that cheating runaway. Wow. I know what he's like. After what he's done to me, I'll never forgive him. <laughs> oh. I'll never have him back. If he comes back here, I'll have him condemned and punished. And uh, let's take that on board as Christian people. Sometimes we struggle with forgiveness. We get hurt. And the only thing that seems to matter is the hurt. It's like a terrible toothache. <laughs> and all you can think about is the toothache. Something goes wrong, and that's all you can think about. And the last thing you want to do is forgive. But the Bible says, let's be people who forgive. And uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read verses on that now, but we know, for example, in Luke's Gospel, at the Lord's Prayer, it says, Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Right, just moving on. <clears throat> Love costs, doesn't it? Love Costs. It always costs something. And there was a cost to Philemon to forego deserved judgment on Onesimus. There was a cost to Onesimus that he had to kneel in shame and repentance and remorse, <laughs> admitting fault and asking Philemon for mercy. And there was a cost to Paul to pay the debt of what whatever Onesimus had taken. And uh, doesn't it remind you of Zacchaeus? What did he say? And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So now we've been talking about reconciliation, but now we're actually talking about 
redemption, the cost, and what is paid. And I'd like to just briefly mention about this uh, concept of to redeem. And we find in the New Testament it's a word that's actually taken out of the slave market. A slave is owned by his master who can sell his slave at the slave market. The slave is so money so he cannot uh, buy his own freedom. But if somebody pays the required price, a ransom price, then the slave is released from bondage and set free. So the slave has been redeemed from slavery. And in the Bible, this action of redeeming is used in the context of a person who's a sinner being redeemed from sin. And so sin holds the sinner in its grip and won't let go. The sinner cannot escape. What is more, the sinner is also guilty and deserving judgment. What a terrible situation to be in. But God, in his love and justice, reaches out to the sinner by sending his son, the Lord Jesus, to pay, to pay the required ransom price and set him free. Jesus did this by dying on the cross. And in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14 we read, uh, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So Paul is wanting Onesimus to be forgiven, reconciled, redeemed from his debt, accepted back and embraced as a Christian brother by Philemon. Now let's just think of that slide we had on before about from wreck to reconciliation. There's something that needs to be added there. <laughs> There's something missing. What was Paul's role in this? And here we are. It seems to us here that in order to bring about this reconciliation and redemption, Paul is acting as the mediator between Onesimus and Philemon. He's acting as an advocate on behalf of Onesimus. An advocate is someone who knows you, who understands you, and will plead your case. Someone who can speak up for you and represent you before your adversary or your judge. And uh, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit as being a, a counsellor, a paraclete, an advocate. And also, of course, the Lord Jesus as an advocate and a mediator. Paul is mediating between the two. He's putting forward a proposal that will result in the removal of the problem that exists between the two and the restoration of a good relationship. Paul is appealing to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus, not on the basis of anything good about Onesimus, but on the basis of Philemon's loving and forgiving nature. And Paul knew it was in Philemon's heart and had every confidence that he would forgive and would take him back. So Paul is the ideal advocate and mediator because he knows both parties, he understands the situation, and is able to propose a perfect solution. And Paul is like the Redeemer too. He says, I will pay. I will pay. And when you think about it, isn't this a picture of our Lord Jesus and what God has done for us in uh, mediation and advocacy and the appeal 
and the redeeming work. And I'd like you to put, well, you and I can put ourselves in the picture here and say, well, I was Onesimus. I was useless to God. I couldn't please him or serve him because I was in the slave market of sin. I stole something from God in terms of uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. They stole something from God. What did they steal? It's hard to put into words, but they stole a loving relationship. They, they took on themselves independence. They stole from God. They ran away from God. And uh, Onesimus ran away from Philemon, rejecting his love and care. And as sinners, we'd all gone our own way, haven't we? And the Bible tells us that in, uh, in Isaiah at chapter 53 and at verse 6. We all, okay, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that's the Lord Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So as sinners, we'd become useless to God. We'd become unprofitable to him and unable to please him. But then we've got this wonderful list, haven't we, that we've described, and I won't go through it again, but... There was the appeal to what? The appeal to be reconciled. There's the need to repent and confess. There's the need of a mediator. As the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. And that speaks of our Lord Jesus. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as what? As a ransom. There's the redeeming price. As a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. The Lord Jesus was also our advocate, 1 John chapter 2. He's our redeemer, as we've read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so we become, as believers, we become useful to God. And that's the challenge to us this morning, from being useless to useful. Can we fix it? Yes, we can. Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you this morning that you have, haven't written us off. Lord, you could have just discarded us and thrown us away, and that's just what we deserved. But Lord, you reached down and you repaired us and restored us in our relationship with you. And in turn now, Lord, we pray that we might use the toolbox. 